Revelation 15 verse 5 to 16 verse 21. <laughs> Buckle up. <laughs> it's, it's a little long, but we can do it. Um, if you'd like to read along in your blue Bibles on your pew, you can find the passage on page 599. After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw, coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits, performing signs, who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of the God the Almighty." Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done! And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there has never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. 
The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, church family. For those of you who have not yet met, my name is Josh, and I serve as the lead pastor here at Icon. Uh, before we jump in, would you, would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your word that has been passed down to us for centuries now. And, and now we here together in the middle of Seattle will get to hear from you on something that is at first shocking, but in the end is relieving. Father, I, I pray that as we go through this chapter and think about your judgment and your wrath, God, I pray that you would give us a, a mind to really hear what all of that is about, why you actually exercise judgment, and why, in the end, that is good news. And so, Father, I, I feel, as I have all week, the, the sheer necessity of your Spirit's help in that. None of us can come to that conclusion in our own strength. And so, God, would your Spirit help us now as we, as we explore the the topic of your judgment and of your wrath, and would your spirit give us ears to hear. God, would you unite your power with my weak words and help us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this week, I am going to be going on a little road trip. I'm very excited about it. Actually, once I get done preaching and praying, I'm literally going to go get in my car and drive to Salt Lake City. So I won't be here for Donut Sunday, uh, which is unfortunate. I feel like Calla scheduled that on the day that I wouldn't be here on purpose because uh, she knows how much junk food I eat and she's just trying to be my helper. Um, but uh, I'm still bitter about it. So. Um, yeah, I'm going to be going to Salt Lake City. I'm very excited. It's, a, it's going to be a time with a few other guys that I've done ministry with in the past. And last year, we started doing an annual retreat together where we just get together and encourage one another. Uh, they came up here last year, and we went out to Clay Ellum. Uh, and then this year, one of them is in Salt Lake City as a church planter. And so we got a cabin there in Park City. I'm excited to go out there. Uh, and the guy who's a church planter in Salt Lake City, his name is Austin. Uh, and he's one of my closest friends. I love Austin. And I, I've known him for just five years, but we really hit it off and connected. And uh, he actually came up here with me to Seattle when I was first exploring whether we were going to live here or not. Uh, and I did the same with him. Uh, I went to Salt Lake City with him uh, in order for it to kind of help him explore uh, what his future was and where God was calling him. Uh, and that first trip to Salt Lake City with him, uh, <laughs> it was actually my last trip. It was, it was an interesting one. So we were, we were both at a, at a church back in Dallas, and uh, I went with him, and we were meeting with another church, and uh, we were talking with a bunch of people, and I, I ended up talking with this guy who was a part of this other church, uh, and he was asking us what we were doing there, and I just kind of uh, told him, you know, what Austin is exploring, whether he feels called to Salt Lake City, and, uh, and he asked, oh, which one's Austin? And something to know about Austin is he's, he's a big dude, he's super buff. 
But 15 years ago, he got in a bad wreck in Colorado. He was uh, driving like a, a four-wheeler down these mountains and actually tumbled down the mountain. Uh, and it was a really bad accident. Uh, he had to get air, air evacuated out of there and everything. Um, but the one real scar that he has still uh, is that he's missing half of his finger right here. Um, and I love Austin, and we're really, really good friends. Um, and so when you're, one of your best friends is uh, maimed, it turns into a, an area of a joke, right? And so that's Austin, and that's our relationship. He knows me. It's been 15 years that he's had nine and a half fingers, and so it's long enough now for his best friend to make fun of him. And so I do it all the time. I'm, I'm undefeated in rock, paper, scissors, because um, I, all I have to do is paper. It, it, it either ties him with paper or I beat him with rock because he can't do scissors. So undefeated. Uh, so I make fun of him for it all the time, and we have a good time. But me, just being the dummy that I am, when this guy asked, oh, which one's Austin? I said, oh, you can't miss him. He's the guy with nine and a half fingers. And the guy just went silent for like 10 seconds and I could tell he was upset. And he pulled out one of his hands in his, from his pocket and goes, well, he's lucky because I have eight. And I was like, Joshua, <laughs> how dumb do you have to be? And I, and I just like tried to explain away. Oh, he's one of my best friends. I, I know it's not funny, but you know, it's, it's not objectively funny, but it's potentially funny. And so like, I'm just like running and I just walk away. And that was my last trip to, to Salt Lake City. And, and I was embarrassed. I was mortified. Uh, embarrassment. That's, we all know that feeling. We know what, it's, what it feels like to be embarrassed about something, whether it's uh, in a group or whether out in public, we, we know embarrassment. It just makes us want to shrink away from the moment and away from the group. We all have those embarrassing moments, whether it's something like that, putting your foot in your mouth, or even small things like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm often embarrassed about my lisp. I have a lisp, and I, I think of it often. We did uh, a new podcast this last week called Icon Institute, and I was listening to it, and I was like, is that Kyle with Mike Tyson? Like, my, my lisp just was, it was bad. It was bad on that podcast, and I'm embarrassed about it, okay? Authenticity, vulnerability. I'm embarrassed about it. We, we all experience embarrassment. We, we want to fade away. We want to move out of uh, the room. We want to escape as quickly as we can. And embarrassment is not something that just happens socially when we put our foot in our mouth or vocationally having a lisp but needing to speak. It can actually happen in all kinds of areas in our life. We, we get embarrassed in our relationships. We get embarrassed in our, in our work. And, and I would wonder... If you get embarrassed in your faith, I, I wonder, are you embarrassed by anything being a Christian? Are you embarrassed about something of the Christian faith? And you, you might feel hesitant to admit that, but it, it's really okay. We, we really do believe some strange things. Some very strange things. Now, I've banked my life and my eternity on the validity and authenticity of the Christian faith, but I also recognize that there are some aspects of the Christian life that might lend itself to embarrassment. There are some areas of the Christian faith that you just might not want to talk about. I don't want to get into that. Or if you're here and you're not a Christian, there, there may be areas of our faith that you think is incredibly strange or just outright off-putting. Some things in the Christian faith can at first make us wince and just want to shrink back in embarrassment. I don't want to talk about that. 
I don't want to go there. This piece of the Christian faith is not something I want to talk about. It's a thing we kind of keep in the closet. And I would wonder if as we went through our scripture reading for today, that was one of the things that you winced at. The wrath of God. Is that embarrassing to you? Did you wince? Did you want to shrink back? No one's putting these verses on a coffee mug, right? Nobody. We're embarrassed by them. We, we, we kind of shrink back. These are the places in scripture that we skip in our devotionals. The aspects of our faith that we'd like to just not talk about. But, but friends, my goal today is to show you why you should not be embarrassed believing in and serving a God who judges in wrath. Now that's, that's the question I want to answer for you, why you should not be embarrassed by the wrath of God's judgment. And that comes from something very specific and very obvious in the text. As, as God's judgment is being poured out, nobody in heaven seems to wince. Nobody, quite the opposite. The angels sing of God's righteousness and true justice. That's a strange part of this text. There's a worship service in the middle of this frightening text. And I, and I want you to see why. My hope is that we can see exactly why God's judgment is something that should cause us as Christians to praise him. It's not something we should hide and put in the closet, but it's something we should pray, praise. God's judgment is not the thing that we should just keep tucked away. I understand the impulse, but in the end, there is nothing, I want you to hear this, there is nothing about God for which you should be embarrassed. There is no aspect of his character, and there is no action that he takes that we should feel embarrassed about. And that includes this aspect of his character called judgment and wrath. Now, before we answer why we should not be embarrassed, let's, let's explain some of what's going on in this chapter. So we are at the point in Revelation where the end is near. We're in Revelation 16. We got six more chapters, which means three more sermons after this. Uh, and then we will be at the end. Now, as God continues to pull the story forward, as we've seen throughout this letter of Revelation, the risen Jesus has been peeling back the curtain of reality for the Apostle John. That's what Revelation is, that Jesus is peeling back the curtain. We've seen the glory of Jesus. We've seen the ultimate victory of Jesus. We've seen the ways evil tries to fight back against the incoming kingdom of God. And just last week, we covered what we called the unholy trinity. Satan, symbolized in the dragon, uses two beasts to persecute Christians. And these two beasts were symbols of evil political power and evil religious power. And now, as Jesus continues to peel back the curtain for the Apostle John and for us, we come to what is called the, the seven bowls. Now, if, you, if you've been with us on this journey through Revelation, you, you know that the number seven is an important number. And that two, time, two times before in this letter, there have been events that have also happened in the intervals of seven. We've read of the, the seven seals, if you remember that, which was in, in many ways where we saw how evil seeks to push back against God's kingdom as Jesus breaks the seals and brings God's purposes into the world. 
And then we saw after that the, the seven trumpets, which were God's way, God's way of warning the world of what would come if they did not repent and turn to Jesus. Those trumpets were announcing, turn to Jesus, judgment is coming. And then now, here we are at the seven bowls. And what's important to see about these seven bowls is that these events are missing something that both the seven seals and the seven trumpets had, fractions. The seven trumpets and the seven seals each had fractions. Specifically, if you remember that the seven trumpets, which were God's warning of judgment, each time that a trumpet blew, the resulting catastrophe only, only affected a certain portion of the things that it was directed at. So if you remember back, only, only a third of the water was affected. Only a third of the sky was affected. Only a third of humanity was affected. The seven trumpets were God's warning of judgment, allowing people to see what life is like when one persists in the rejection of Jesus. But just announcing it, just warning it. And then we get to the seven bowls, and there are no such fractions. Instead, when a bowl is poured out, it affects all of what it was directed at. No more fractions, no more portions. What's being symbolized here is the full judgment of God's wrath. No more warning. At this point in the letter of Revelation, the time is up for repentance. Now, those who have, trusted in, have not trusted in Jesus will endure the consequence of that choice. Revelation 16 is the outpouring of God's wrath and judgment before he brings the paradise of his presence down to the world. It's one of the last steps in the progression of the story. Before God brings the paradise of his presence down to the world, he will first deal out consequences. But as I said, the most curious thing about this chapter is not necessarily the, the terrifying symbolism that describes the reality of God's wrath. And remember, we've talked about this all the time throughout Revelation, but it's important to remember that symbolism is what drives Revelation. Whenever you read all of this, John, Jesus, through the Apostle John, is trying to give you imagery that will, as we've said, go uh, beyond reason through the emotions into the imagination, changing you at the very fabric of who you are. That's what imagery does. And so this imagery of, of wrath and hailstones and earthquake and water that's turned into blood, it's meant to make you feel something, but it's still imagery. But it's imagery that does describe an actual reality. But again, that's not the most curious part of this chapter for me. The most interesting part is that in the middle of all of this wrath, there is a worship service that the angels sing. And the question of the rest of the sermon is, is why? Why does heaven praise God for exercising his judgment and, and therefore why should we? Well, to get an understanding of why we should praise God for his judgment, we first have to understand what God's judgment and wrath is, right? This should go without saying, but us and God are very different. Very different. Yes, we are made in God's image, and we carry certain attributes and capacities that, that mirror God's own nature, but in the end, God alone is God. 
and we are finite human beings, which is a very important truth to remember and hold on to when it comes to this topic of judgment and wrath. Too often when we hear the words wrath, we filter it through our own experience. We hear that word and we think it's something like what we experience. We experience wrath and anger in ways that can be described as short-sighted or even an overflow of passion. Or we experience wrath, like real wrath and anger at just simple annoyances. So I'm a dad of two kids, one who's almost five and one who's almost two. Wrath because of simple annoyances. I know that. My son right now is learning how to talk and his ability to identify things is growing, but he wants to keep letting you know that he's able to identify things, like windows, oh my gosh. He just looks at windows and says, window, window, window? I'm like, yeah, that's a window, good job. Window, yeah, yes, that's right, that's a window, yeah, yeah. Yes, that's, yes, that's a window, you got it right, okay, yes. Can you point at something else? Okay, hat, yes, that's a hat. Or my daughter, oh my gosh, yesterday, we were driving and she, she's in the live phase right now. And she looked at this brown beam and said, what's that? And I said, oh, that's the beam that carries the electrical wires. Why? Well, because we need electricity. Well, why? Because it powers our fans and our lights. Well, why? Well, that's how God made it. Why? Because God is smart. Why? Because God is God, <laughs> okay? Just anger, yes, I'm so glad that you're curious and I wanna cultivate, cultivate that curiosity, but gosh, just trust me on this one, okay? We are very different in our wrath, in our anger, in our frustration. God's wrath is completely unlike that. And, and in fact, I think out of all of the characteristics of God, this one called wrath is the one we are probably most foreign to because our experience of anger is so far from what, what we mean when we say God's wrath. We can experience and give love in a way that's similar or mimics how God does. We can show patience even in a way that mimics God's patience. But because of our selfishness and core broken nature, I don't think we can very often experience anger in any way like God does. His wrath, his anger is completely different. We are short-sighted and fly off the handle. It's so short-sighted, it's, it's almost always a result of our selfishness. We are inconvenienced and so we lash out. That's not what God does. That's not God's wrath. In his book, Leon Morris, uh, his book, The Apostolic Preaching of the Cross, he gives a definition of, of wrath that I think is helpful. He says this, wrath is God's strong, settled opposition to all that is evil, arising out of God's very nature. It is a burning zeal for what is right, coupled with a perfect hatred for everything that is evil. God has a burning zeal for what is right, what is good, and a perfect hatred for everything that is evil. In fact, you could take that quote and see that God's wrath is a result of his love, actually. God knows the perfection he intends for the world. God knows the goodness that he wanted to set up. 
And with that knowledge knows everything that stands in the way of that perfection. And not, every, not just everything that stands in the way of it, but he knows everything that directly works against that perfection. God knows the perfect goodness that he intended for the world and that he still intends for the world. And he also knows the ways in which our sin and evil itself vandalizes his world and seeks to delay his perfection, his good purposes. So out of a love for what is actually good, God responds. God responds knowing where he's taking things in the end, again, the paradise in his presence. He knows in order for that to happen, he's going to have to address what is evil. God's wrath becomes opposed to everything that would prevent that good. And so God's wrath is not a temper tantrum of a megalomaniac. No, no, God's wrath is a settled opposition. And I love that word settled too. It's not up and down. Settled opposition to everything that stands in the way of his perfect plans for the good of this world. Which is already praiseworthy enough. We should not be embarrassed by God's anger against evil. Oh my gosh. We should not be embarrassed by that. We should not be embarrassed by that. We should praise him for it. The fact that he knows the good that he intends to bring to the world and the perfection of peace under his reign and rule and the fact that he's aware of everything that stands in the way of that, that is praiseworthy. It shows a God who cares. It shows a God who sees and is paying attention. And so before we even get to the consequences of his wrath and judgment and why those even in itself are praiseworthy, just the sheer existence of God's wrath is praiseworthy because it says that he won't stand idly by. I referenced a few weeks ago bystander apathy, having a sense of apathy towards an event that you can step into and fix. God does not suffer from bystander apathy. God sees what's happening. God sees what's wrong and he steps in in order to fix it. He cares enough to not let things slide by without addressing them. He, has a willing, he is unwilling to let his world forever devolve into chaos and sin, and that in itself is praiseworthy. But it's not just the nature of God's wrath that is praiseworthy, but also the consequences. We, we see in this text some of the consequences of God's judgment. And they are actually good news in the end. What do I mean? Look, look back at verse five and six with me. It says this. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord, God, the almighty, true and just are your judgments. Now, that's a tough verse at first glance. They're going to drink blood because it's what they deserve. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Because <laughs> it's what they deserve. But, but, but what is it really saying? What truth is it trying to communicate in that imagery? It's this, 
that in the end, no one gets away with anything. No one gets away with anything. It is what they deserve, says the angel. The actions of those who have killed God's people bring a fitting consequence. No one gets away with anything, which is such a relief, at least for those who have experienced real evil and sin, that nobody gets away with anything. Think about it, friends. I mean, consider if you were to stack up every wrong that has been committed against you, from the most passing and small to to the most grievous and traumatizing, could you bear to think that those things go unpunished? That those things will never be addressed? Could you bear the weight of that? No. It's much more relieving to know that God's judgment comes and evil gets away with nothing. If God's judgment never comes, evil gets away with everything. Again, could you bear to accept a world like that? Where nothing, all the accounts are up and down. No account is settled in the end. How could you live in a world like that? How could you process evil and wrong if you knew that none of it was ever going to be addressed? How could you process that? How could you go on living in anything other than just modern cliches that in the end don't give you any real strength or peace. No, we need to know that everything will be addressed because of God's judgment. We don't have to live in a world like that. We don't have to bear the weight of unaddressed evil. We don't have to carry that, but rather we can receive the relief of God giving evil the punishment that it deserves. And that's good news. (laughs) That's good news. And if you don't hear that as good news, friends, I would wonder, just my thoughts, whether it's because you live a relatively comfortable life. You know what, can I tell you something? Most of our global neighbors have no problem with the idea of a God who judges. They have a problem with a a God who gives grace. But most of our neighbors around the world have no problem with the idea of justice because they actually experience evil and corruption and oppression. And I would wonder whether our allergy to the wrath of God is really our Western privilege because we have such a comfortable life. Just bring all the grace and mercy and love. Don't talk about all that wrath. The rest of the world is saying, what? No, we we need a God who, who judges. The rest of the world praises him for this because they know it means what's been done to them will be addressed. And our allergy to that reality of final judgment is, I think, often due to our comfortable lives. Yesterday, we we had men's breakfast and I I was sitting there talking with uh, Steve and then uh, another uh, friend here, icon named Brett Webster. And Brett just got back from a trip to Europe and and he was going through uh, Rome and he said, he, he was showing us pictures of what was the most um, just kind of sobering things that he saw. Um, he, he walked through the, the catacombs there in Rome, which if you don't, don't know what the catacombs are, those are basically mass graves for Christian martyrs. 
um, stacked 10 high, 10 bodies stacked high in a mass grave. And that's who this letter was written to. Those Christians who were martyred for their faith, who stood under the evil reign of Domitian and Nero, no problem with the idea of a God who judges. No problem with the idea of a God who has wrath. Instead, that was something that that led them into praise, that everything will be addressed. Listen listen to this from Richard Mao in his book, When the Kings Come Marching In. Thus, the sins that have been committed in political history will be publicly exposed in the holy city. God will not allow such wickedness to go unavenged. Political dictators will be led into the presence of those whom they have cast into prisons. Kings and queens will bow low before the widows and orphans they had oppressed. Cruel tyrants will hear the testimonies of those they martyred. White, racist politicians will wither under the gaze of black children. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Good news, friends. Every account, settled. Throughout all of human history, God has been keeping tabs on evil. He has personal knowledge of every act of evil and he will bring it to account. No one gets away with anything. Hear the relief of that, friends. Whatever that thing is in your mind that happened to you, that happens to you, God sees it. God saw it, and he will bring it to justice. Every account will be settled. But it might be hard, if I had to imagine, to hear the full relief of that. Precisely because none of us are only victims. None of us are only victims. The idea that every account will be settled and every act of evil will be judged accordingly That might be relieving at first to some degree, but then all of a sudden memories come rushing into our brain about all the ways that we have performed evil. Each of us can identify a time where we were victimized by evil, but we can also point to when we were the victimizers, every one of us. In other words, each of us has experienced sin and each of us has practiced sin. So you might not hear that as relief. Every account is gonna be settled, God's wrath is going to come against every evil act that's been done in human history. That puts me on the chopping block, pastor. I know, me too, me too. But before you go running off into a flurry of fear, let me remind you of this. God's judgment is praiseworthy. Another reason why it's praiseworthy is because it's not alone, (laughs) What I mean by that is this, we can praise God for his judgment, even as guilty sinners, because we know that God is not only a judge. That's what makes his judgment so praiseworthy, is that he's not wrathful alone, but he is also savior. In this tough reality of God's wrath, we must receive the relief that evil will be punished, but we must also remember that God has provided a way for all of us to escape the punishment for the evil we ourselves have committed. (laughs) All accounts will be settled, yes, but either on the cross 
or in this. And our great hope is that our account has been settled. I mean, throughout the book of Revelation, I've been trying to get you to see the present day relevance of it all, that there are things that the book of Revelation presents to us that have actually already happened and the things that are really always happening. It's not just a book of the future. It's not just something to pull out our calculators so we can understand what's going on in the days. No, there are many things that this is always happening. Evil is always working against God's purposes. Throughout the book of Revelation, Jesus is peeling back the curtain on past and present reality. But here, in the scene of God's final judgment, Jesus is peeling back the curtain on something that actually hasn't happened yet. The gavel of God's punishment has not come down yet. And because of that, there's still time. And that's a relief. And in fact, the judgment that will come at the return of Jesus Christ is being delayed precisely because of God's patience. The Apostle Peter talks about that in his second epistle. He identifies God's patience as the reason for Jesus' delay. That's not a hard question to answer biblically. If someone asks you, hey, why hasn't Jesus come back yet? Say, because he's waiting for you to repent. So will you? It's not a hard question to answer biblically. God is waiting. God is patient so that as many people as possible can hear the good news of grace available in Jesus Christ and actually turn. It's God's patience that's delaying Jesus' return because God's patience is waiting for as many as possible to turn. God is not only wrathful, he is also merciful. And that makes it all praiseworthy, praiseworthy together. <laughs> the idea that karma's not real, that some of us don't get what we deserve, we actually get grace. That's a relief. That God alone, that God is not just wrathful and judge, deals out judgment, but actually gives grace. That should make us praise him all the more. God is not only wrathful, but he is also merciful. And not only is he also merciful, but he is supremely merciful. <laughs> Throughout the scripture, we see that wrath is something that is built up within God. You get this imagery throughout the whole narrative of scripture that God is being, there's wrath building up within him. But on the other side, his mercy needs no provocation. His mercy never needs to be provoked. It's ready. It has a hairline trigger ready to come toward us. God's justice and wrath will come and it will be good news that every account is settled. But God is slow with his wrath. It has to be built up, but his mercy is ready to pour out on you. That is praiseworthy. Wrath builds up over a long time, but his mercy has a hairline trigger at all times. What a praiseworthy God. Listen, listen to this from the 17th century pastor, Thomas Goodwin, and this is a long quote, and I found it this morning, so we don't have it, but just tune in. He says this, though God is just, yet his mercy may in some way be said to be more natural to him than all acts of vindicative justice that God shows. In these acts of justice, 
there is a satisfaction of an attribute. Yet it seems throughout scripture there is a a kind of violence done to himself in it. The scripture shows that there is something in it that feels contrary. The scripture says, I desire not the death of a sinner. That is, I delight not simply in it. I don't delight it for pleasure's sake. When he exercises acts of justice, it is for a higher end. It is not simply for the thing itself. And he goes on. There is always something in his heart against it. But when he comes to show mercy, it is said that he does it with his whole heart. There is nothing at all in him that is against it. The act itself pleases him for itself. There is no reluctance in him for it. In Lamentations 3.33, when he speaks of punishing, he says that he does not afflict the children of man from the heart. But when he comes to speak of showing mercy in Jeremiah 34, that he does it with his whole heart and his whole soul. Therefore, he ends, acts of justice are called his strange work or strange act in Isaiah 28, 21. But when it comes to his showing mercy, he rejoices over it to do us good and rejoices with his whole heart and with his whole soul. What a God. That even in his satisfying the demands of justice, that every account will be settled. And bringing evil to account, there still seems to be something in his heart that is satisfied in the justice, but deeply dissatisfied with the consequences of the sinner. His whole heart is not in it. And yet with his mercy, his whole soul, his whole heart is in it. He pours forth mercy. And so friends, I, I would encourage you today as, as you hopefully hear the relief of, of God's judgment that whatever has been done to you will receive its just consequence either on the cross or in this end. And then to remember the grace and mercy of Christ. Maybe you feel like you've been building up God's wrath. Maybe you feel like you've been stuck in a certain sin, stuck in a certain pattern, and you have the idea in your head that God is just getting ready to blow out. Just blow out all of his wrath on you. No, he's ready to be merciful, friend. He's ready to give you grace and mercy. So would you receive that today? Would you rejoice that we, serve a, that we serve a God who cares and will bring justice and that we serve a God who has provided a just way for the sinner to be saved, for us to receive mercy. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your character, that you care You see, you know. We praise you that deism is a lie. You are involved in the world. You are aware of the world. And because of that, you are aware of every way that evil has assaulted and vandalized your good world. God, we thank you that you care about that. And we thank you that you will bring it to justice. 
We praise you for it, and we praise you even louder. That for all of us here who have not only been victims of evil, but victimizers ourselves, who have participated in that vandalization of your good world, God, you've given us a place to hide in Jesus Christ, a rock of grace and mercy that can shield us God, our hearts sing because of it. So Lord, would you, would you move us to, to praise you for your mercy and to trust you for it all the more. In Jesus' name, amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching to a time of response. While we recognize it may be hard to capture that as you listen online, we encourage you to take a moment to reflect on and respond to what the Spirit might be telling you in response to what you've heard. For more resources and to find out how you can join with us on Gathering on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. And as we say each week, Christ is all and we are His.